0: there's such a thing as a consensus in American domestic policy, it's the relationship between family structure and social and economic outcomes for children. Children born and raised in stable two-parent homes are far less likely to experience poverty, educational failure, and criminal justice involvement than those who do not. But recognizing this fact is not the same as building public policy to reach the objective. Government cannot mandate happy families, leaving us with a stark reality. Almost 40% of all births in the U.S. are to unmarried parents. Millions more families experience divorce. The result is too many children growing up without the love and support of two parents, vulnerable to a wide range of social and economic risks. As we've discussed on previous podcasts, the conservative answer to this challenge is called the success sequence, which says that if we graduate from high school, get a full-time job, and don't have children until after marriage, we will, in all likelihood, avoid poverty clear, neat, and powerfully predictive. There's just one problem. The sequence is descriptive, not prescriptive. It tells us what success looks like, but doesn't really say much about how to get there. What sorts of public policies support the development of communities and families in which the success sequence is recognized, appreciated, and followed? My guest today is Scott Winship, the former executive director of the Joint Economic Committee of the US Congress, and creator of the committee's Social Capital Project. Scott recently joined AEI as Director of Poverty Studies. While working on Capitol Hill, Scott, along with his co-author, Rachel Sheffield, published a report looking at these very questions. Entitled, The Demise of the Happy Two-Parent Home, Winship's report looks at the factors that influence family stability, including the relationship between economic conditions and marriage strength, the role of the federal safety net, neighborhood and cultural factors, and the economic disincentives to marriage that are embedded in federal programs. We got together to talk through these complex and challenging issues. Scott Winship, thanks for joining us on Hardly Working.
1: Thanks for having me, Brett.
0: Well, you're new. You are new to the AEI family. I've noticed that other people who have podcasts at AEI have got you making the rounds, so we're glad we could get you for a few minutes to talk about your work. As with everybody who comes on this podcast, I do like to get them to talk just a little bit about their career path, kind of what what led you into this interest in sociology, why did you get a PhD, and then kind of who were your influences along the way, people who encouraged you to take this path?
1: Yeah. So it's been a winding path, as, as they often are. Grew up in a small town in Maine, then ended up going to Chicago for college and discovered I like cities a lot. And then during my freshman year of college, the Los Angeles riots happened, and I was sort of not enjoying being a biomedical engineer major and had taken a sociology class. And just as a result of the events in, in Los Angeles in 92, got really interested in...
0: Okay, I'm sorry, but I have to, we have to pause right there. <laughs> Why were you in biomedical engineering to start with? <laughs>
1: That's a great question. You know, honestly, I, I think, I don't know if this will resonate with, with any of your listeners. You know, I grew up in in a fairly small town. Most people, not a lot of people from my high school went on to get four-year degrees at the time. Most who did stayed in Maine. I didn't have a good sense of what my options were. And I was I was, I was good at math. So I thought, oh, math means I, you know, engineering would probably be fun. For a little bit, had had thought maybe I would try to be a doctor and the pre med weeding out process is, is strongly effective. And so yeah, I kind of I kind of just knew I was best at math and enjoyed math and didn't really know all the variety of things you could do with with that sort of skill. And it turns out crunching numbers, go figure, ends up being a good way to put math
0: skills to use. So you stumbled into a sociology class.
1: That's right. Yeah, just an intro survey class. Really enjoyed it. And then really just kind of wanting to understand the sort of frustration and anger that I saw vented during the Los Angeles riots really kind of led me to take some more sociology classes. And the real formative one was, I think the next year I took a class with Christopher Jenks, who for people who don't know is, you know, just one of the most important poverty and inequality researchers ever, <laughs> and was fortunate enough that he was that he was at Northwestern, where I was getting my undergrad degree. And ended up becoming a research assistant for him. Eventually, I went to grad school to get a PhD and he was my advisor there. And so, he was just a really, really influential person in, in my background.
0: So, did he actually like pluck you out and say, I had this experience with professors who would like, they would kind of identify certain students in the class and like, try to track them into the profession, basically. Is that what happened? I mean, was like, I want this guy. <laughs>
1: I, I mean, I think, so the class that I took with him ended up being mostly grad students. And I was, you know, kind of a, a naive sophomore who you know, was really just approaching this stuff for the first time. And I think he sort of did see in some of my homework that I had an interesting way of approaching, you know, the assignments and analyzing data to the extent that we we had time to. And then I think, you know, he just needed an RA. He had a grad student who was an RA at the time, who was just bogged down in her own, her own work and... He had this this project that I think he was a little bit nervous about getting it out, and so she, his, his grad student, kind of trained me, and and it worked out that we worked worked well together and stayed in touch, and so it was it was really fortunate.
0: That's great. Did you get your PhD at Northwestern then, or did you get a nope. master's there?
1: I, I just got my bachelor's there, okay. and then I went to Harvard. Had well, the, I think it was the, maybe the first or second incoming class. Of this multidisciplinary social policy program, so it was rooted in sociology, but I also got exposed to labor economics and political science. I attended seminars with with folks from those programs, so it was a really, really neat program at the time. It was you know just a fabulous group that was there: William Julius Wilson, David Elwood, and one of the people that inspired welfare reform in the '90s. Just a bunch of you know top shelf scholars in poverty yeah. and
0: inequality. Those are major, yeah, those are major figures and quite a broad spectrum ideologically too. It sounds like you had exposure to a lot of different perspectives. So you got your PhD there. And then where where did you start working after you finished your
1: Yeah, degree? so I, it took me a long time to get the degree. There, was, there were a few years of overlap between writing the dissertation and starting to work in DC, but kind of quickly got into a think tank world, was at Third Way which is a kind of moderate center-left think tank. Initially, was there for a year and then was at the Pew Charitable Trusts where I had the opportunity to work on something called the Economic Mobility Project there, which was really gave me a deep dive into mobility, um, which is one of you know, one of the things that I write about most today. Then was at Brookings for a couple of years, working for Bell-Sahill, the Manhattan Institute after that, most recently at the Joint Economic Committee, where Senator Mike Lee hired me to... Direct the committee and run this thing called the Social Capital Project, which I think we'll end up talking about here.
0: That's quite an amazing background in terms of the breadth of the philosophical perspectives that you kind of immerse yourself in. Uh, that's very, very unusual in this day and age in DC where everybody seems to be in one lane.
1: Yeah. And so, I left out my, my first job out of college
0: was at Acorn doing community organizing. So, it's well, there you go. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but it didn't, you weren't on any videos at Acorn. I was not. uh, Yeah. Well, that's good. (laughs) So let's get into the report. Tell us about it. Before we sat down for this, you commented, I think, in an email, or maybe it was something we talked about, but you said something like, it took me a long time to do this, to get it right, I think you said. So tell us about the report. What are its major themes and why did it take so long to, quote, get it right?
1: Yeah. So the report is called The Demise of the Happy Two-Parent Family a bit provocatively titled i wrote it with rachel sheffield who is still on the joint economic committee as i should say i just left there within the last month and a half or so rachel's written quite a long time about family structure issues at the heritage foundation before she was at jec and yeah it took a long time it's a fairly data intensive report we start out with a bunch of trends on you know family structure and single parenthood those took us quite a while to put together even in previous reports can find on the jec website including you know constructing some new trends for things like shotgun marriage you know where we just didn't no one had done it recently and we wanted to, to we needed it for for a previous paper and so we spent a lot of time just putting things like that together and then once we kind of had the descriptive story done, we wanted to try to say something new about the debate over the causes of it and that ends up you know as we'll talk about being a debate, it's kind of around whether economic problems have led to family decline. That's sort of the, I would say, conventional wisdom. We wanted to dig into that a little bit, and so that also involved putting together, you know, ultimately our own hourly wage trend data, which is really hard to do. I'd been cribbing numbers from the Economic Policy Institute for a few years, but wanted to sort of put together our own our own numbers. And I think, you know, trying to say something new too, which doesn't take up a big part of the report, but about how to think about whether growing up with a single parent causally is is bad for kids, which may seem like an obvious question, but we tried to sort of deal with it with a little more nuance in the paper than you often see. So for all of those those reasons, it just took probably a better part of a year to write.
0: So okay, walk us through kind of the major pieces of the report. It breaks down into several kind of sections. So talk about that.
1: Yeah. So so ultimately, you know, we wanted to say something about this decline in family stability that's happened over, you know, depending on the measure for for quite a long time, but certainly you know, pretty consistently over the last 50 or 60 years anyway. It's part of the broader interest of the social capital project, which I should say, you know, continues, continues to exist and do great work under Vanessa Brown Calder, the new executive director. But the theme of the project has been across all kinds of different forms of associational life, there have been declines. And so by associational life, We just mean what people do together. So, decline in family strength has been consistent with declines in civil society, people doing things with their neighbors, people spending time after work with their coworkers, people trusting in institutions, people attending church, kind of across the board in in all areas of our social life. You just see these, these steady declines. And so, clearly, among the most important relationships in the world are the ones within families. And so, we approach this question of, of family stability decline as part of a of a bigger pattern of decline in association life. So what we what we report is, you know, to some extent, what's been reported elsewhere, the share of births that are to single mothers rather than to married parents is up quite a bit. So in 1960, you know, about 5% of births were to unmarried mothers. Today, that's more like about 40% for African Americans it's more like 70% up from about 20% in 1960. And there are big disparities by maternal education levels as well. And that's for a variety of reasons. In previous reports, we kind of showed two that were underappreciated are just that people are marrying less and and later. And so what that means is that there are just more women who are at risk of getting pregnant without being married. So it's not so much that single people are are getting pregnant at higher rates than they used to, although that's true. It's just that there are more of them out there now than there were in the past. I thought
0: thought it was really interesting in your discussion in there about the shotgun marriage stuff and how, correct me if I'm wrong, but did you say in the report that 51% of, I mean, that children were being born in Mm. less than nine months after marriage, basically. Is that, did I read that correctly?
1: I think that's right. Honestly,
0: I've, I've forgotten that data point too. But it's
1: it's it's surprisingly high. It's, a, yeah, it's an eyebrow yeah. rate.
0: So in the past, what would happen is that couples would get pregnant before marriage, and that, that there was sort of a almost an automatic pathway from that to marriage. Which is this is how we dealt with that problem. I mean, that's a very high number, and that's no longer the case, actually. Right? I mean, the, this is we don't have as many out of wedlock pregnancies. As we used to, because of access to birth control, abortion, and so on, but we actually this was the kind of an average experience for yep. Americans.
1: Definitely, way more common. Yeah, I think sort of in the good old days of the 50s or 60s, <laughs> you know, is like 60 percent of non-marital pregnancies were were followed by a shotgun marriage. I think, and that's okay. that's down to like five percent these days. It's sort of shotgun marriage doesn't really exist anymore.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it. Of course, there's all sorts of downsides to shotgun marriages. I mean people who were never who never ever should have been married wound up getting married and probably divorcing pretty quickly thereafter. So I think that's that's absolutely right. Yeah, it was
1: a lot of the rising divorce rates that happened during the seventies were probably, you know, had a shotgun marriage behind them. So
0: wow, that's that is super interesting. I've never heard that before. Okay, so You've sort of covered this but it seems like there's a couple of different stories that we tell ourselves about decline in family stability and there's a social story there's an economic story maybe there's a third one called a cultural story I don't but talk about the different stories that we tell ourselves about the decline in family stability
1: the main narrative on the left I would say and 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 this is a very common narrative on on the right as well I think especially among oh some you know some of the sort of national conservative strands but it's essentially a story of how economic changes hurt the ability of men to support a family and that that ended up weakening marriages so you know if you're a woman and you've got to figure out you know whether to marry a person that you've got pregnant with or if you're deciding whether to stay with the father of your child the argument is that over time men their wages have declined their employment opportunities have been reduced, and so they are just much less attractive as partners, especially if you're putting up with a lot of nonsense. You know that that sometimes men are more likely to perpetrate than than women. But essentially, marriage has just become a worse deal for women, and, and at the same time, that things have deteriorated for men. Women have gotten more economic opportunities, more ability to support themselves on their own, and and, and this is sort of where the conservative part of the story comes in. I think. You know, we have a more generous social safety net. so it's actually more feasible, especially for women who maybe aren't used to a very high standard of living. It's easy to su- easier to substitute safety net benefits for an un- unreliably employed man. The conservative story, you know is is more about culture, I would say and and it's partly to do with a safety net. I think there's a real important conservative insight that regardless of what happened, to men's economic fortunes, it's certainly not going to be easier to to raise a kid alone for for many mothers who who may not have higher education, for instance, unless you sort of are taking for granted that there is a safety net that that will let them do that. And so our safety nets have these these bad incentives sometimes not to not to get married, not to stay married, not to invest in yourself, not to work, things like that that's part of a broader cultural story that conservatives tell that often includes, you know, things like the changes of the 1960s that sort of made people more focused on if it feels good, do it sort of sentiment, more on individual fulfillment rather than broader obligations to society. Marriage is is now something that people can evaluate year to year, month to month, as to how Happy, it's making them, and and where alternatives are are sort of on the table in a way that they that they weren't earlier in the 20th century when you married for life, and that was that was it. So the the conservative story is more about how the culture has changed. There are fewer moral constraints on whether people have sex before marriage, and that that has created a lot of problems, especially for folks with fewer resources available to them.
0: So this really strikes me as very interesting. You were probably at this meeting, or maybe not, I can't remember. But I remember being at a meeting not too long ago at HHS where it was a basically a review of kind of the impact of federal welfare programs on marriage, a so-called marriage penalty. It's sort of the, not the tax side of the marriage penalty, but the programmatic side of the marriage penalty. And and a real focus on, well, you know, what we really need to do is eliminate these disincentives, that, like we've got a real incentive problem here. Hmm. And that always struck me as being a very, very one-dimensional take on it. And it kind of surprises me that conservatives are so interested in that idea, mostly because I think that the, the drive to marry and to create children and to have the satisfactions of that kind, that life are so powerful that they should be overwhelming. You know, kind of these economic incentives. What do, you, where do you come down on that?
1: I think I probably share the hopes of a lot of conservatives that that you could make changes like that and, and make a big difference. I don't think we have ton of good evidence to suggest that, that that would be the case. And ultimately, a lot of conservatives I think land there for one of two reasons. The first reason being that the other things that we've tried to do to restore marriage just haven't worked. Welfare reform had a lot of strongly positive effects in terms of getting more people to work, reducing poverty rates. One of the major goals of it was to reduce single parenthood. And I could make an argument that it actually like stopped a couple of bad trends from getting worse. But there's certainly nothing in the data that would make you think it had you know a, a very strong impact on you know, whether people were were having kids out of wedlock or not, are staying married rather than getting divorced. The big thing that was tried as part of welfare reform when President George W. Bush was pres- was president were these marriage promotion and fatherhood programs, and those just were not effective. The the sort of best you can point to, if you squint real hard, is that the program in Oklahoma caused participants to feel better about their relationships than they used to, but they'd. T- they didn't get married any 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 more than they used to.
0: I think there was a there was an evaluation out last year that said that there were actually some impacts on reducing propensity for divorce. Maybe oh, interesting among, among couples. So I think there has, but you're right. I mean, in terms of like, did we find? First of all, full disclosure. I mean, I worked on those programs with Wade Horn. So yeah, I, yeah. But there is no silver bullet here. There's nothing that's oh. going to fix everything, right? Yep. So if you were counting on marriage education and responsible fatherhood education to reverse these the negative trends, that's probably no more or less effective than changing the economic incentives. Like, these are kind of tectonic forces in American society that we don't really understand fully and, and how to move them, but we know we have to try different things to see if we can get them to move. So, let's talk about the relationship between family stability, what the data tells us about the relationship between family stability and economic opportunity.
1: So, it's it's pretty clear through... So, I almost wrote my dissertation on this, this very question. And, and And I'll say that I ended up not doing it because in the end, I felt like it was such a difficult question to answer well which is true of a lot of social science questions. But I, at the end of the day, I couldn't figure out a research design where I wouldn't sort of have my own qualms about like, well, it could be this, it could be that. And so, I didn't pursue it. So, so there have been hundreds and hundreds of studies, you know, maybe more than in any other area of social science that consistently find the kids who grow up with two parents do better on you name your outcome. They do better than, than kids who grew up with single parents, and of course, the big question is whether that's causal or not. In our paper, Rachel and I try to argue that, like the evidence, even though we're talking about hundreds of studies, that it's actually weaker evidence than you might imagine when you think about things in terms of counterfactuals. So, when we ask whether kids who grow up with a single parent do better or worse, we can't be thinking about kind of an ideal two-parent family versus versus the, the single-parent family they, they grew up in, you have to think about them growing up with both of their actual parents, one or both of whom like didn't want to be with the other. And when you frame things like that, it's, it's less of an obvious question what the causal impact is. The argument is basically like some kids may be damned if their parents do and damned if their parents don't. They sort of unfortunately are in family circumstances that are not conducive to upward mobility for them. That said, I think my gut just like probably most people's, says that you know growing up with two happily married parents is, is just gonna be much better for any number of outcomes than, than growing up without one of them in your life. And the evidence is, is very much consistent with that. Probably the latest evidence on this that, that I think a lot of people have been persuaded by is Raj Chetty's mobility research, where he shows that one of the strongest predictors of a child's upward mobility rate is the share of families in their neighborhood growing up where kids were raised by two parents rather than by one. And he's got some really interesting findings that that show even if you are in one of these areas that have a lot of single parents, but you yourself were raised by two parents, your upward mobility is actually less than, than it is for other kids of, of married parents.
0: So there's um, some sort of critical mass issue of in a neighborhood, if you get to kind of a tipping point of two-parent families in that neighborhood, everybody benefits. And if you are below that tipping point, it doesn't matter whether you're in a two-parent family or not in terms of your outcomes.
1: Yes. And that's kind of the, the major interpretation people have had. Now, I being like annoyingly skeptical, you know, you can make another <laughs> argument, which is that like, well, you know, it's something else about these neighborhoods, you know, that is impeding everybody's mobility. Like they happen to also have a lot of single parent families. Mm-hmm. But the fact that the kids of, of the married parents in these neighborhoods are not doing well either, you know, could suggest that like, it's not actually the single parenthood. It's something, something else. That said, Chetty has these really interesting results where where he shows that, you know, black boys do better if they have a lot of married black fathers in their neighborhood, but white boys don't benefit, you know, to the same extent and black girls don't benefit to the same extent. And so those are the sorts of interesting nuanced findings that Chetty and his team, you know, kind of routinely come up with that make you think. All right, you know that's that's actually like more persuasive that that there's a causal relationship going on here.
0: Yeah, that is interesting. Uh, I hadn't heard that about white boys and black girls. That's there's always another layer of nuance in this. I found Chetty's study really compelling in terms of the way I think about it is that married couples and stable families kind of produce more good stuff inside them than they consume and then it kind of spills out into the neighborhood and provides some protection for people who aren't part of that family but again whether you can actually demonstrate that mm. through social science data is another question but that intuitively that that's kind of where I go with it you know on this question of you know like what is it about? To parent families that may be protective for children. You know, parents can be unhappy, and if they're really unhappy, that's probably not good for kids, but sort of low-level unhappiness. Anyway, that you've got this dynamic that goes on. And we we talked about this a little bit in another conversation about kind of the the neurodevelopment of young children, whether that plays any part in this. Have you ever looked at that research to sort of suss out the the emotional matrix that gets laid down in those early those early years with kids and whether that might be a factor in terms of their long-term outcomes.
1: Yeah, I I don't know the answer to that. I I know, you know, a couple of the pathways that a lot of people have posited toward, you know, as as to why growing up with a single parent would be disadvantageous. You know, you have you have issues like maternal stress, which I think increasingly, researchers are really starting to appreciate the role of parental and maybe maternal, specifically, stress and depression levels on their ability to be effective parents. And so it's easy to imagine that a single parent trying to do it. And you know, anybody who's listening who's been a parent knows you know those, those initial months and years of parenthood are just brutal. I and mean, nobody knows what they're doing. But at least if you're, if you're married, you've got somebody else who also doesn't know what they're doing next to you that's making it incrementally more likely that you're doing something right. To do that on your own, you know, is, is, is just incredibly stressful. So it would be easy to, to see how that pathway would be really important, but I don't know of any.
0: So kids who come, on average, kids coming out of two-parent families do better. That doesn't apply to individuals. Some individual children are going to do better in a single-parent family. All things being equal if those parents are really unhappy with one another and are creating misery for themselves and for their child as a result. What does the data tell us about inequality as it relates to kids and their their homes of birth, as it were?
1: Yeah, it's it's a big contributor. So, you know, obviously, if one of the big demographic changes that happens over time is that there are fewer adults living together, that alone is going to be a big deal for inequality just because you know households that have two earners or two potential earners are going to have higher incomes on average than than people who are living by themselves so one change that's happened over time apart from parenthood is just there as people are marrying later or not getting married at all there are there are a lot more single person households relative to married couple households in the past so that that increases income inequality in itself and of course, people towards the top tend to at least eventually get married and and their marriages are stronger. And so they're less affected by some of the, the rising divorce rates that we see, which also exacerbates inequality. Now, if you add kids to the picture, a lot of single parents, especially if they don't have formal education levels that command higher wages, they're going to, to decide to use the safety net for more of their needs than they otherwise would. And the American safety net you know, is not especially generous. It's, it allows a lot of people to, to get by, for sure, but it's not living high on the hog. And so if more folks are relying on the safety net rather than on their own earnings or you know, the earnings of a spouse that's also getting exacerbated inequality. There there have definitely been studies that have tried to simulate what would happen if all of the people who are single parents, you know, married someone of the opposite sex that, you know, looks typical for, for what their dating pool might be. And those, those show that quite a bit of the inequality goes away. Now, you know, that's, that's a simulation. Presumably a lot of like these single moms like know their know their spouses better than we as researchers do when we're staring at zeros and ones in the data. And it may be the case that you know a lot of them wouldn't actually be better off in those circumstances. But I, I think most people would argue that it's it's definitely been a major cause of income inequality and of, of inequality of opportunity as well, if you think about things like intergenerational mobility.
0: So let's focus on the upper end for a second and what happens there higher education higher income people what are their patterns of marriage and child rearing look like
1: yeah so i should say that that most of the declines both for family stability and also you know the broader social declines that that the social capital project has been looking at have occurred across the board they've been they've been much worse for folks lower down that's a pretty consistent finding but it's it's the case still that even you know for college graduates that single parenthood has increased among that group as well, but it remains far less likely, far less common than it does for for folks who have less formal education or, or or lower income. But much more so than lower down, what you see in terms of family formation at the top is people being you know quite deliberate about the timing of when they get married and who they married relative to their own career paths. You see a real Commitment to investing in kids. You know, Gary Becker 50 years ago talked about kind of crude ways that a lot of people don't don't like, but there being sort of a quality and quantity trade-off when couples are thinking about children. You can have more children, but then you're going to be able to invest less in each of them. And therefore you might think their opportunities, their outcomes will be a little bit worse, or you can have fewer children and invest more in them. Increasingly, folks at the top have really chosen. To have fewer kids, but to invest very strongly in them. And that includes not just, you know, sort of very thought out, carefully chosen relationships within childbearing, you know, where childbearing starts, but also taking time to, to sort of invest in them, spending money to invest in them. Increasingly, there are gaps in terms of the amount of money that folks at the top are spending on their kids for education, classes, hobbies, that sort of thing versus folks lower down. So it's become much more intensive at the top. I think Richard Reeves has has written some of the best stuff on
0: this. What do you make of that? I think it's Reeves' argument, actually, that there's a kind of opportunity hoarding among middle and upper income families that actually has a negative effect on children that are not part of those families.
1: Yeah, I think it's complicated. I, I think, you know, I'm not very comfortable using the term opportunity hoarding to, for that. You know, to me, that's very, like, basically doing everything you can for your kid in terms of giving them extracurricular opportunities and sort of getting them in the best schools they can go to living in the neighborhoods that are that are going to be best for their opportunities. That's different to me than, than something like, you know, the the kids of Yale graduates getting a leg up when they apply to Yale Or some of the other things that that Richard talks about, which are, you know, sort of appear more unfair on their face than something like this. I mean, to some extent, you know, if you don't do everything you can for your kid, what kind of parent would you be, right? And, and so I think that's just going to be inevitable that folks at the top are going to do everything they can to invest in their own children. And I think that's right and not to be discouraged. On the other hand, you know, it does. It would be better for everyone, I think, if we were more cognizant of these sort of inequality of opportunities. And and you see it occasionally, you know, during during this year when folks have put together pandemic pods, you know, to help their kids not fall behind in school by by placing them in, in small groups with other kids. You occasionally see talk of, you know, whether there are opportunities to fund other pods for other kids who are in very different neighborhoods that don't promote opportunity as much, but those are sort of limited conversations. I think we'd be better off thinking about whether there are ways to to compensate for the things that we do for our own kids to try to help kids that don't have those opportunities.
0: Right. I mean I we raised our kids mostly here in McLean, Virginia, which is, you know, one of the wealthiest uh, Fairfax County, one of the wealthiest in the country. And You know, the resources are just, we came from Capitol Hill living in Washington, D.C., and the resource gap between what we saw in the schools here versus what we saw on Capitol Hill was just, like, astonishing. It's the reason we moved, right? You know, we wanted that for, we wanted a more enriched environment for all of our kids, especially for our youngest who has special needs. But one thing that has sort of lurked in the back of my mind is this question of how much is enough? that's what I wonder about. And whether we may be doing too much for our kids, that's individual call, I think, to be made. But on a sort of statistical basis, is this actually driving... Is it having the effect of limiting opportunity for others? Because we insist on such a high level of support for the folks that are immediately here in Fairfax County immediately around us. So...
1: I think that's right. And certainly something I, I struggle with as well. I've got a 10-year-old daughter who's gone to school, and some very good DC elementary school. The middle school in her neighborhood is not so great. And so then, you know, me and everybody else in the elementary school is trying to think about, all right, what do we what do we do now? And I do think that's why it's really important in particular for people on the center right who are more comfortable with income inequality. And less comfortable with sort of redistribution and a big role for the federal government in a lot of areas to really prioritize the issue of unequal opportunity to figure out, you know, are there things we could do that are consistent with our broader principles that would make a difference rather than just sort of shrugging and say, well, you know, my kid won the coin toss and that's great and it's a bummer, you know, for everybody else's kids who didn't. To me, that's kind of an unacceptable response even as I sort of, you know, disagree sometimes
0: with the way that, that, that Richard, you know,
1: uses opportunity hoarding.
0: So I feel like I noted in the report as I was reading was this idea that when America was poorer, not necessarily America was poor, but when it was less affluent than it is now, 50, 60 years ago, many of these indicators that we're concerned about were actually better So there's this idea of, you know, we're better off when we're worse off. What do you think of that? Are we better off when we're worse off?
1: Well, I guess the way I would put it is that there have definitely been trade-offs that we've made over the last 50 or 60 years. And the way I would characterize those would be to say that we've collectively chosen more stuff and sort of a more fulfilling interior life. And at the expense of community life and 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 family life in a lot of ways, this is my big beef. I think getting a little bit of astray, you know, with, with the national conservatives out there who I think would like to tell a story where there's a very clear bad guy, which is you know that there's just been dumb elites making policy that prioritizes economic growth at the expense of everything else, and that that is responsible for everything from family decline to the opioids crisis to you know declining quality of music you name it. And that's that's a neat story to tell because there's a clear enemy who is not most of us. I think it's a much more complicated story though. I think you know we are the problem in a lot of ways. The sort of most poignant example maybe is that for a lot of our social capital declines and a lot of our family declines as well, a big factor is that women just have a lot more economic opportunity than they did in the good old days, quote unquote, rather than having to to stay at home and be expected to to raise kids full time, which is a very important role. And lots of people still do it. But for those who don't want that role, they they can go out and become whatever they want. And as a result, you know, we've got fewer human beings that are sitting around neighborhoods able to kind of organize collectively at the local level. We have fewer people marrying at 19 or 20 and and forming large families but the trade off there is that the other 50% of the population that that didn't have as much opportunity as before now you know have a lot of opportunity and i think if we are honest about those trade offs and really think about them a lot of us would say like well you know it's unfortunate that there have been these trade offs but it's not obvious that that we were better off when we were when we were
0: poor yeah. for instance right so everybody who wants to go back to that stand over here in this group, it'd be a pretty small group when you really think about all the trade-offs, not just gender trade-offs, but race and sexual freedom and all of those things that were choices were just far more constrained. So I agree. I mean, I I don't think we were better off and we were worse off. I think we just had a different set of problems than what we've got right now. So you mentioned this in the report, like, decline in social capital hurts everybody, to a greater or lesser degree, but people at the bottom of the socioeconomic spectrum suffer a lot more when when social capital declines. Can you just unpack that idea a little bit? Yeah.
1: So this is something I've been trying to think a lot about. And to some extent, I'm still I'm still sorting out. There is this paradox, you know, if I've if I've sort of claimed that these social capital declines are the result of, of affluence. Then you need to explain why it is that the most affluent among us tend to have stronger families, tend to be involved more in civil society. Pretty much across the board, you attend church more frequently. This is this is the story of Charles Murray's book coming apart. And I think the way that you resolve the, the paradox is just to note that, so first of all, even 50, 60 years ago, it was the case that folks lower down the SES, the socioeconomic scale, you know, had more instability and sort of less social capital than, than folks higher up. So to some extent, this isn't new. What's new is that the declines have have hurt them more. I think the reason for that is partly that as folks higher up have been able, because of their own affluence, they've, they've been able to rely less on not only their neighbors, but on institutions. Generally, they've been able to sort of shrug off the moral constraints that used to be real guardrails against sort of risky behavior that can produce, for instance, out of wedlock pregnancy. As those folks have been able to to sort of pull away from those sorts of unifying things, the folks lower down have been have been hurt by it. So we don't have strong institutions anymore that were probably most important in affecting their behavior. We don't have these these universal moral constraints that were probably most important for a lot of those folks as well. And so that's hurt them. I think the other the other thing that's happened is we've just become more segregated economically over the last few decades, and so this is again something Richard's written about. I think in an article called "Trickle Down Norms," if I remember right, you know, to the extent that people on the center right would like, and Charles Murray has mentioned this in his book, if 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 a lot of us are supposed to be preaching what we practice, increasingly we just don't live in the same spaces as the people who are really suffering from from some of the destabilization of our social life. And so, folks are, are, are sort of left in these communities where there's a lot of mistrust. There's mistrust between men and women. There's often high crime rates. And so, that certainly breeds a lot of mistrust. That hurts institutions even more. So, I think in a variety of ways, it's, it's sort of polarization and, and, and segregation and the abandonment of kind of common integrated circles that's left folks lower down flailing a
0: little bit yeah i think that's really interesting the idea of thinking of this as an aspect of polarization within american society polarization of conditions not just attitudes i always think of it as you know the middle and upper classes maybe they catch a cold but people at the bottom get pneumonia when stuff goes wrong whatever we see we see materialism for instance you know Big problem at the top with people overconsuming and you know being fixated on on material goods. But what does that do for do to people when those attitudes take hold among the poor? Well, it turns into violence, fights over sneakers and you know that that kind of thing. It's it's just whatever we see at the top, we see an exaggerated form kind yep. of at the bottom. Completely agree. Okay. Well, this has been fascinating. If people are interested in reading more of your work, where should they go?
1: The best place to go now, I guess, would be my AEI Scholar page, which is not super populated with stuff yet. But I, I think if you just Google Scott Winship AEI, you can go there. The Social Capital Project has a lot of important stuff, I think, and is continuing to do a lot of important work. That's at jec.senate.gov. Otherwise, yeah, I'm working on developing a sort of personal web Unfortunately, I think they just have to use the Google for now. Okay, just use the Google. We're good with the Google. (laughs) And are you on Twitter? I am. My handle is S Winchy without the P at the end. It's my Swedish
0: alter ego, S W I N S H I. I ask whether you're on Twitter when I know perfectly well you are (laughs) because I follow you and you're a great Twitter follow. And if you're interested in economics and poverty and income inequality and all of those, Hot Issues, Scott writes. You You write a tremendous amount on the, on that and engage with other scholars, which leads to some very interesting exchanges. So, Carefully
1: choose an adjective.
0: Yeah, 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 absolutely. You're less combative of personality in person by far than you are on Twitter, but that's the nature of the medium, I think. True. I'm working on it as well. Yeah. <laughs> well, great having you, Scott. Thanks for, so much for taking the time out to talk with me today and We'll look forward to having you on again as your research portfolio at AEI starts to roll out.
1: That'd be fantastic. Yeah, it's a pleasure to, to be on the show and look forward to having more
0: conversations. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orrell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.